0: The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff and management.
1: As you begin your spiritual journey, you are often told what to do and receive advice on which path to follow. But as you move along, eventually you need to become your own guide. Progress can be difficult at times, but once you reach new levels of awareness, the inner vistas are spectacular. Welcome to Nurturing the Spiritual Spelunker in All of Us. Your guide and companion is Giles Asselin. Come join us now on this path of exploration. Here is your host, Giles Asselin. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh,
2: Welcome to Nurturing the Spiritual Spelunker in All of Us. Uh, We're experiencing some technical problems here, so my apologies. Uh, It's the second time in two weeks, so something needs to be fixed. Uh, Apologies again. Uh, Thank you very much for those who sent me some feedback during the week, uh, some uh, email feedback. I wanted to reflect on that a little bit. I got uh, two comments from two different friends, one of them uh, based in Alaska, and uh she connected especially through the to the second to the third uh anecdote that I mentioned last week. Uh the one about the woman uh at Starbucks that I was meeting for about two or three hours and the woman um, kind of, you know, refused to pay me my cup of coffee when I was going to give her advice and and uh, she was reflecting on what had happened uh, to her during the day, and I think, she, again, she was able to connect very uh, very nicely a uh, dovetail into what she was experiencing. And the fact especially that sometimes, you know, we're planning to open doors for ourselves, and in the end, based on whatever um, programming we have in our mind, we, end up, we just end up closing those doors very tightly. And, and, and again, the, the spelunking is there to help us uh, understand and dig a little deeper into what's going on in terms of those uh, unconscious patterns, unconscious habits, or unconscious whatever mechanism, in a sense. And the second piece of feedback I wanted to share is from a friend uh, based in uh, Massachusetts. And we've been in touch for quite a bit of time. She was at the retreat in 2007 when I decided to leave the uh, Buddhist organization, she was there, so we have a, quite of a, a nice spiritual connection. And uh, I'm going to read you the little piece that she sent me on email. And she said, One thought that came to me towards the end of the show, as you were sharing that you were not offering an answer, or as I heard it, a prescription for how to go within, was that it's not about how to. When we are struggling in life and when we feel lost, we often reach on how to change it, what to do. Really what is needed and what you so lovingly offered is to be gently encouraged, invited, a window suggested, or a spelunking cave open with a light. And I think that's why it's important for us to have uh, companions on the path, uh, people we can talk to. Uh, Again, we don't need to go to these people to get solutions in our lives. If we look within and if we go down to where we're supposed to go, where where the message is coming from, I believe it's, uh, it's possible to, to do well and to do the work we are supposed to do. I wanted also to reflect on two little anecdotes that um, happened to me this week, and I was more consciously into my spelunking gear, uh, going, going within and flashing the light where I'm supposed to flash the light so I could, uh, I could see things. And a small anecdote happened Saturday morning in relation to the second story I mentioned last week, uh, the guy who came, the homeless guy who came into the home where I was and uh, plugged the TV in. So in a sense, he was disturbing my peace and quiet. And despite that, all of that, I was able to send him compassion and I, was, I wasn't upset and it was a very, I was in a very neutral mode, as I explained to you. And that surprised me. And the reverse happened Saturday morning. We were shopping for food in a supermarket. And right by the entrance of the supermarket, there's an area where they find the the produce. And Saturday is obviously a very busy day for the supermarket. They want to sell as much as possible. And there was a large display of green plants right in the middle, which was really a pain because we couldn't move um, easily. And so I went by that display. I was to the right of it. And to my left came a woman, and uh, she was riding a cart. She was pushing a cart, and at some point she bumped into a pot plant, and she tipped it off. And the plant was on the floor, and I, I kind of motioned to her, and I said, "You know, you tipped off that plant. Would you like to pick it up?" And she looked at me, and she kept going. So in a sense, she she couldn't care less. I mean, and, and I was annoyed, and. Uh, you know, if you reflect on this, it makes some sense to be annoyed when someone tips off something. But I ask myself, you know, what is it that I am annoyed now when uh, the Tuesday prior or the few days prior I was able to stay neutral? What in me has shifted in a sense that Saturday morning that I couldn't maintain my neutral, my neutral gear, my neutral uh, position and um i saw this woman two more times in the supermarket and every time i saw her i was annoyed and and again it's understandable but yet um that's why my spelunking ended on that saturday morning uh but uh, it's something i wanted to mention because again the mundane uh gives us so many chances so many opportunities to to spelunk to do spelunking and i think we should take uh every opportunity, in a sense, to, um, to do it and to enjoy it, even sometimes if uh, the messengers can be be uh, a little painful in our face, in a sense. And the second example, the second anecdote I wanted to mention, um, it happened Tuesday evening, Monday evening. Uh, my feet were cold in the evening, so instead of uh, going to the gym class, I go to a gym class also usually Monday evening, uh, I decided instead to go to the pool. There's a pool at our gym, also a large pool. There's an Olympic-sized pool, a middle sized pool, and then there's a hot tub. And because I was cold that afternoon, I decided to spend some time in the hot tub. And I was very pleasantly, very warmly uh, looking around. And at some point, I saw a guy who wasn't very fit, in a sense. He had a big belly. I was wearing tattoos. So, in a sense, my judge-o-meter was on. I started judging him. But this wasn't the point. I knew that I was judging, and I was consciously aware of, of what I was doing. But what it led me to is a different, a different experience, a different situation where I was judging, and this one I wasn't fully aware of it. So I, I'm, not, I'm very happy that the first instance, the first person that I saw, led me into this different situation. And this situation has to do with two friends of ours. Uh, we don't know them very well. They are the, of the same gender. And they had three girls, three daughters, um, that were conceived, I think, through surrogate mothers. And um, I think two of the girls are twins. They are possibly eight or nine. And the eldest is, uh, is about 12 or 13, so a young teenager. And these two guys have been together, had been together for a long time. I learned last September when I saw one of them and three, three girls at the park, that they had been together for 23 years which is a very very long time obviously and the other part of the news that I learned then was that they were splitting and I was I was shocked but it's, it's life unfortunately and my heart went to these three girls um, and my, my reaction was I know, how is it that they're going to be affected uh, in their adult years by, by this split knowing that uh, each of the partners uh, got into a new relationship. So instead of having two men around them, they would have possibly four, at a maximum of four men around them. And, and uh, again, I was judging. Um, my, my heart, again, went to these two, two or three girls and, and thought about, you know, what is their situation? I rarely meet them, so I can't, I can't imagine much about their environment. But uh, their fathers, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, I thought they were responsible. And I, was, and I wasn't judging gear. And um, that's what it was. I just have to admit it. And uh, being there in the pool at the same time, you know, a pool we go within as well. So help me dive into this, this judgment pattern that uh, all of us hold. And uh, it's, not a very, it's not a very positive. It's not a very healthy pattern, obviously. It's something that needs to be, to be turned around. And the reason I like this small experience is that it gives me a, a segue To go into um, the topic of the day, what I wanted to address, in a sense, Uh, these uh, unconscious behaviors, these patterns, like my judging these people, I wasn't fully aware of judging these two men, but I was, and and it blocks us. It blocks the flow of other things that can be much more positive, positive, like joy, like happiness, like love, like compassion. Compassion I was able to express and send the week before. So I wanted to reflect on that and um, my question in a sense, my leading question for this show and possibly the next one is, how do we unearth and come to see those unconscious behaviors or, or patterns? And it's not, um, it's not an easy thing. Um, we have to spend time and we have to, to again go within and realize what is going on and what is blocking our view in a sense. And um, in order to do that, uh, what I wanted to do is spend some time reflecting and sharing with you my, my childhood. And what, um, what happened, um, it was at home. Most of it happened at home. Most of the, I would use the word trauma, happened at home when I was the same age as the eldest uh, girls that I talked about, about 12, 13. So I still have some memories about, um, about this time. Uh, I'm sure I repressed quite a bit. But um, it's still there. It's still there, and, and I've been doing a lot of work about what happened at home, and I will share that with you in, uh, in a few minutes, uh, most likely after the break. What I wanted to reflect in the first place uh, is an experience that I lived in um, when I was in graduate school in, in Wisconsin. And... Uh, I had a very difficult time, possibly a year into my studies. I stayed a total of four and a half years. And uh, something popped out at the time. And that's what I wanted to to address in more details um, when we come back, most likely when we come back. I have to be able to manage the break, and it's not always easy. But I had an experience that uh, allowed me to look back into my childhood and realized that some things that I experienced back then were really damaging, and that the thing that popped out in in Wisconsin during my graduate studies, in a sense, were the result of what I had stored within my unconscious. Some of it was conscious. Some of it was not so conscious. But it popped out in my face, in a sense, and it created, in the first place, a very deep depression. And... uh, wasn't very easy to handle. I will give you a, a bit more details after the break. But uh, I survived, and um, I was able to reflect back years years later. In fact, um, I learned about two years ago that this is called the Dark Night of the Soul. So when we come back, I will tell you a bit more about my, my Dark Night of the Soul. It's also something that I wrote in my blog in October of 2013, if you'd like to read the the full excerpt. Thank you. I will see you soon.
1: Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events and short features. High definition, premier quality programs available 24-7 VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Are you looking to advance spiritually? Listen each week for Spiritual Enlightenment, Advancing One's Wisdom. Your host, Medium Maureen Allen, will cover an array of spiritual topics aimed to help you advance your soul's desired growth. Each week, areas of spirituality will be discussed and explored ranging from strange, paranormal experiences to heaven, spirit guides and angels to learn more about the other dimensions and how to better assist your path of evolution tune into spiritual enlightenment advancing one's wisdom every tuesday at 4 p.m pacific time 7 p.m eastern on the voice america seventh wave channel
0: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go, on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
1: You are listening to Nurturing the Spiritual Spelunker in All of Us with Giles Asselin. To reach the program, call in to 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to seeking at nurturingthegift.org. Now, back to the program.
2: Yes, hello. This is Jill again, back for the second segment of uh, nurturing, Nurturing the Spiritual Spelunker in All of Us. So I would like to go back to what I mentioned right before the break in terms of my experiencing the, the dark night of the soul. Uh, that happened in, I bit. if it was in November of 1990. I was studying in Wisconsin, uh, my first uh, experience uh, in the U.S. in graduate school, and it had been, okay, I had a chance to adjust somehow. But came a time uh, in November of 1990, so we're talking about 24, 25 years ago, when um, we had a test, uh, a test in a class called Industrial Psych, Industrial Psychology. And uh, for whatever reason, uh, I, wasn't feeling, I wasn't feeling well. Uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't come up with any answer, and uh, I experienced a block, And by the end of the test, I think it lasted for about an hour, I knew that something was going on. And uh, I knew that my my grade would be, at best, it would be a D. And I wasn't happy, and um, I went on. I left the building, and I went on um, to do uh, the rest of my activities in the afternoon. I don't think I had school. And then at night, in the evening, um, I went downtown, downtown to the the little town where I lived, and uh, I went to play table tennis. I used to play table tennis about once a week. I used to play a lot of table tennis when I was in France, so I had kept that, that habit. And I went to play uh, the way I'm here in, um, in that town. And at some point, uh, I, I remember that we were playing on the second floor of the building. At some point, it felt like something collapsed. Uh, it was very special. I would say that I used the term something, the floor of my life collapsed. And I had no more ground, in a sense. I was groundless in my life. And it seemed that suddenly, because of the test I had flunked in the morning, uh, my life was all dark. I have nothing else to keep me going. In a sense, uh, in my mind, I thought that I had failed uh, in life. I was a failed human being. I wouldn't be able to finish my studies. I had about two more years to go. And I was really you know, really, really, my life was gone in a sense. It's a very strange feeling. And uh, I reached out for help after I came back from um, the table tennis session. I called the international students for, uh, advisor for international students. And we talked and she came to see me. And uh, eventually in the month uh, afterwards, I mean, I I was able to recover. But something uh it was a pretty uh, difficult situation, possibly the most difficult situation in my life. I remember some days when I was not so much in class, but in a quiet place in one of the buildings at the university. I was looking at the ceiling, and I was there for so many minutes. I don't know time was at a different flavor then, but I was looking at the ceiling, and it looked like nothing was going on. My, my eyes were riveted to the, to the ceiling, and I was... I wasn't quite there. I had also one episode when I was at home. At the time, I used to rent a room at a person's place, a nice person called Dorothy. And one, I remember it was one Sunday. I stayed in bed most of the day. I didn't know what to do. Um, again, I was looking at the ceiling. Uh, and uh, came the evening. It was around 6 p.m. I went down downstairs to fix, uh, to fix a meal. And I met uh, Dorothy. who Was living downstairs in her own room and the living room. And she, I said to Dorothy, "You know, I don't think I'm going to make it." It's interesting. how suddenly that, that that feeling of losing meaning in my life. And interestingly enough, um, I learned about this this dark night of the soul, for uh, reading a piece by Eckhart Tolle, the the German spiritual uh, teacher, and. Um, he wrote, he wrote a piece I would like to, to read just a little bit about this. He says the dark night of the soul is a term that goes back a long time, and he's responding to someone interviewing him. So he said, yes, I have also experienced it. It is a term used to describe what one could call a collapse of a perceived meaning in life. Exactly what, that's exactly what happened to me. An eruption into your life of a deep sense of meaninglessness, The inner state in some cases is very close to what is conventionally called depression. And I was depressed, definitely. Nothing makes sense anymore. There's no purpose to anything. Something is triggered by some external event, some disaster perhaps, on an external level. The death of someone close to you could trigger it, especially premature death, for example, if your child dies. Or if you had built up your life and given it meaning And the meaning that you had given your life, your activities, your achievements, where you are going, what is considered important to you, and the meaning that you had given your life for some reason collapses. And his words exactly match what happened to me. Suddenly, again, the metaphor I use is the flow of my life had collapsed. I had no more grounding. And I came to the U.S. It's obviously a big investment in terms of life, in terms, not so much money, but in terms of career and direction in life and and after a year I couldn't see myself going anywhere I couldn't go back home and admit failure and I said to my parents "You know, it's too hard, I can't do it and um, that's what really happened Uh, Eckhart Tolle goes on to say that um, it can happen if something happens that you can't explain away anymore some disaster which seems to invalidate the meaning that your life had before really what has collapsed Sorry. Really, what has collapsed then is the whole conceptual framework for your life, the meaning that your mind has given it, so that results in a dark place. But people have gone into that, and then there is the possibility that you emerge out of that into a transformed state of consciousness. Life has meaning again, but it's no longer a conceptual meaning that you can necessarily explain. Quite often, it's from there that people awaken out of their conceptual sense of reality, which has collapsed. And uh, looking back at that, I can't really say that this experience had a lot of meaning, except what I felt in the months and the years that went by after the experience, after I got out of school. I had the feeling that uh, a crevasse had taken place. It was like, um, if you look at my life as a glacier, in a sense, there was a big crevasse. And what was coming for the crevasse, it was an opening that gave way to unpleasant feelings that had been bottled up for a long time, feelings of sadness, feelings of anger, feelings of resentment uh, came out. And um, I was able to address that uh, mostly from what I remember from my Buddhist practice. And uh, I think I spent about 15 years, 15 assiduous years, uh, years of practice taking care of that process. And I don't know to what extent was was conscious at the time. Some of it was conscious, and some of it, obviously, is there was a a call coming out of my life uh, for something that needed to be cleansed. And I realized when I read this piece from Eckhart Tolle again two or three years ago that uh, this was, in a sense, a a big spiritual experience, something that I had to go through, and something that... uh, would open up, in a sense, to use a spelunking term, that would open up a different cave, uh, a different opening into my life uh, for me to be able to, to go much deeper and, again, to do the work that I'm supposed to do in, in this life. And the reason why all of this happened, again, uh, has to do with my childhood. And I will start talking about it now. I will continue in the next segment and I will uh, eventually talk about the core wound, I think, which was the topic that I chose today for, for this show. And um, to talk to you a little bit about my, my childhood, uh, we are a family of four. At the time, we were a family of four. Uh, my father passed away about 10 years ago. So it was mostly my brother, who is about eight years older than I am, and my mother and my father living in the, in the suburbs of Paris. And my mother is a very strong woman, and so was my grandmother. Her mother was also very strong. Uh, My grandmother uh, was able to, or started managing the farm where she lived at the age of 14. She was born in 1900, and at the age of 14, her father went to war, uh, First World War, and she started taking care of everyone, her mother and her sister. And my mother kept very strong nature, And uh, I can see similar patterns in both families, my grandparents and our family, in a sense that the dominant person in the family is the woman, is the mother. And so my mother was, in a sense, running the coop. Uh, She was a rooster. Or if you want to use a different analogy in terms of animals, she was more like a dragon. If you look at the Chinese zodiac, uh, you have 12 animals. And in my family, the father was a goat. My father was a goat. And my mother was a dragon so you can imagine what it means to be living in a family when one person is a dragon and the other one is a goat and um, it was uh, quite imbalanced uh, to say the least my mother was making a lot of the decisions she was pushing for a lot of things Uh, she had an iron fist And uh, especially when it came to uh, dinner times and lunch time. Lunch time was always at 12, dinner time always at 7. And uh, we couldn't, uh, that was a rule. It was a hard rule and um, it was very difficult to to move that rule or to challenge that rule. And because of that and because of her asserting her authority over us, uh, there was a lot of yelling in the family there was, in the first place, yelling between my grandmother, who was living uh, in a house next door, so she was with us uh, for quite a bit of time during the day. Uh, initially, she was taking dinners with us as well, and she was cooking for me at lunch when I was in, uh, in kindergarten and primary school. I was able to come back for lunch. So there was a lot of yelling between my grandmother and my father. Uh, they couldn't really stand each other, and I think my grandmother had never been happy about my mother marrying... Uh, My father; She was hoping for someone a bit more wealthy and a bit more educated, in a sense. But that didn't happen. And that yelling, in a sense, didn't bother me as much as the yelling coming from my mother. Uh, The yelling coming from my mother, I can remember instances. Again, we are talking about what happened uh, uh, 40, sometimes 42, 45 years ago. So it's a long time. I don't remember all of it. I'm sure I repressed quite a bit. And I also, obviously, uh, took care of some of it. But, um, again, uh, when we were not on time for dinner, either my brother or I, there was a lot of yelling in the house. And my brother, my mother, sorry, again, I said she's a dragon, and she was able to breathe fire, very potent fire. And uh, I remember instances, especially when my brother started working. He got a job in... uh, in Versailles, not too far from the castle. And every night on the way back from his job, he would stop um, in a horse riding club. He used to to ride horses at the time. And uh, he would spend a lot of time there with his friends. Even though he wasn't riding horses, he was there enjoying company of his friends. And he was still staying at home with us at the age of 19, possibly 20, and he would come home, and regularly he would come home 7:10, 7:15, 7:20, and there was an uproar in the house. There was so much yelling going on, and I didn't know where to go. Uh, there was a small uh, kitchen; uh, the table, the dining table, was in the kitchen, so there was nowhere to escape, in a sense. And there was my father, my brother, and I, and my mother. Uh, and, and obviously, you know, uh, I was the youngest, so I was at the time maybe 11, 12, or 13, and I got the brunt of it, even though I wasn't uh, the one being yelled at. And that happened, again, fairly regularly, so I don't know for how many years, but it's something that really got imprinted into me at a fairly deep level, and it's something um, that, again, popped out uh, a few years later when I came to, to Wisconsin to study. And um, some of it, obviously, I was, I was aware uh, that um, I was affected. I was affected on a, on a conscious level, but what I don't know is how I got affected on a conscious level. And uh, eventually all this anger, all this resentment towards my mother, I think, uh, eventually got bottled up and I needed to find a way to express itself and explode in, in the open, in a sense. And that's what happened when, um, when I moved to graduate school in Oshkosh. And there's one more thing also that I, I wanted to share in regards to what was going on in the house. Uh, my father also was yelled at uh, very profusely, in a sense. And um, I didn't realize very consciously, but... Um, I became also very guilty then at the time. I became very guilty because I wasn't able to protect my father. And it may sound very strange, but uh, this is how it happened. I don't know why um, a young teenager of 12 or 13 would feel responsible for protecting his father. But somehow, th- this thought um, got into, into my mind that since my father wasn't able to, to stand for himself... I was there in order to, to protect him and possibly to fight the dragon in the family. That never happened. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't really mature enough to do anything uh, that would uh, help us out, and I guess it wasn't my, my duty at the time. I also remember sometimes when uh, I didn't know how to uh, react, and what I did mostly was to laugh. And Again, I had no chance to escape the dining table, and we were all um, caught, in a sense, in that web. And I realized in retrospect, also I had long conversations with my mother I mean, after I dealt with all of this. And I realized that all of this came from the way she was brought up by her mother. She was also abused verbally, uh, also physically. And we were not physically abused in the family, just verbally. And um, she's never been able to, to address that in, an, in a healthy way and to reflect on what had happened And to do the spelunking or to go see a a psychiatrist, it need be, but obviously when she grew up, when she was growing up in the 1930s, 1940s, wartime, 1950s, you know, people wouldn't go to to see specialists and and psychotherapists. At the same time, also, there's a tendency in France, when you have problems of that nature, to keep things for yourself or to share with your immediate friends, but still not so much to seek um, professional help. So that was in a, in a quick summary and in a nutshell um, what I experienced back home in the, in the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s. And um, that explained again, that explained a lot about what happened to me when I was in graduate school and then things uh, started to, to bubble up and to explode. So I would like to reflect some more on that right after the break. We have another few seconds. And I will start talking about the notion of the, of the core wound, uh, a concept by Bill Plotkin.
0: The bottom line in business talk. Could you be the next legendary leader? That question hinges on your courage and willingness to change. Join Maria Danley every week for Legendary Leaders, Answering the Higher Calling. Be inspired by stories and legend and listen to legendary guests along with live channeling to help you answer your higher calling and become the legendary leader you are destined to be. The world is waiting for you. Step up and join the wave. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com
1: forward slash Voice America. listening to Nurturing the Spiritual Spelunker in All of Us with Giles Asselin. To reach the program, call in to 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to seeking at nurturingthegift.org. Now, back to the program. Yes, hello
2: again. This is Jill, uh, back for the last segment of uh, Nurturing the Spiritual Spelunker in all of us. Uh, thank you very much for listening. I would have a couple more things about um, about my childhood. I think I gave you the, the gist, the gist uh, of what happened and how traumatic it was. Again, uh, we're talking about 40, 45 years ago, so it's things that are a bit shady in a sense. But interesting patterns that I noticed in terms of um, my mother, talking about her mother, again, she went through a very difficult childhood, possibly more abusive than the one we experienced at home. And I believe she still feels uh, quite a bit of resentment towards the mother. And when she talks about her, she doesn't say, like we say in France, maman, "mummy." She doesn't say mommy, or she doesn't even say your grandmother. She said the grandmother. So as much as possible, she, she's distancing herself from the person who was or used to be her mother. And from an, an emotional level, she, she doesn't want to admit you know, the link that there is. And very interestingly also, uh, my brother, uh, again, who was eight years ahead of me, so he had uh, a chance to experience a bit more of, of that yelling and that being bossed around and controlled. Oftentimes when he talks about my mother, you, you see a very similar pattern instead of calling her maman again, he would call her la mère, the mother. And it, to me, it's like a, a cue into um, what is going on. And at times, uh, talking about the relationship between my brother and my mother, uh, he's on a stage in his life when he's giving a change, in a sense, to my mother. And there are times when things that isn't like coming from my mother, and he yells back at her. And my mother, in her own denial, um, she doesn't really understand where it's coming from. And it's very, it's very sad, and that's what happens when you don't do the work that you're invited to do, in a sense, providing that you find or that you hear the messengers and you can um, acknowledge their message. And uh, my brother has done a bit of work, but obviously he has some way to go. And fortunately, I don't have all these... Um, Feelings. My feelings have been aired. I was mentioned the crevasse that I experienced after, um, after my dark night of the soul in 1990 and the ensuing, the following months, following years. And I was again able to, to address those feelings and came to a point where the crevasse or the pocket, the reservoir uh, underneath the crevasse was empty and was clean and I could, that, I could feel that very uh, very distinctly. Uh, once, and to give you a nice ending story in a sense, in March 2006, I went to visit my mother. She was living by herself then. My father again passed away 10 years ago, so I think it may have been the first time I went to visit her. I was on my own. But she was by herself living in the, in the house where we grew up. And um, we had just, you know, good time. I spent maybe at least 10 days to two weeks alone with her. Not there all the time, but um, again, I was able to, to listen to her and what she had to say in regards to her own childhood, and I think she really enjoys that. And at some point, it was a very magical moment. I remember I was in the living room where we watched TV, and there's a couch. And I was sitting next to her on the couch, and we were talking about something. And there was the force within me, it was a very strong moment. And I really wanted to say, I love you. Je t'aime, maman. And I i didn't, for whatever reason. I guess the words did not come out of my mouth, but they really came out of my being. And um, I realized then, you know, after 15 works, 15 long years of working on that scar and working on the content of the reservoir, I was able to, to turn things around and come to a point where Again, I could feel neutral about what had happened in my childhood and how I would uh, look at my mother. And, and in retrospect, because of that and because of me taking care of my wound, uh, taking care of my core wound, uh, the way Bill Plotkin calls it, uh, I was able to have a, an adult conversation and a non-emotional conversation with my mother And I was able, at the same time, to listen to what she had to say. And she had a lot of stories to tell about her childhood, good ones, not so good ones. But I learned a lot. I also learned a lot about my father. Uh, I learned very, very little from my father because he was also apparently had a very difficult childhood. I think he was rejected by his family. And early on, he he was living in a Paris area. And early on, I think he escaped uh, to the middle of France. Uh, the Second World War was about to break as well, and that's why he studied during the war. But all this time, he kept a lot of things to, to himself, and um, I've never heard any of his stories in regards to how he grew up, how he was raised, the kind of games he was playing, the kind of activities he had. And most of what I learned about my father, I learned it from my mother and I asked my mother, you know, why is it that my father is so closed and so withdrawn, emotionally speaking. Um, she said, you know, he's made a decision to keep it quiet and not to go there anymore. And obviously, I think that deep down within, he was very much in pain, except it was too, too difficult or too scary to look back in, in a sense, and to address those memories Again, um, keep in mind we're talking about the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, and all the services you find these days you know, to help people come out of these. Um, the word that comes is quagmire. All these difficult situations were not available. And things happen. You're a man. You're supposed to be strong. You keep things for yourself. You don't cry. And you do all these things. And that's, um, in a sense, um, the story of my childhood between a, a very strong and a yelling mother and a father who was uh, pretty withdrawn and who kept a lot of things to himself. And so I am, here I am today reflecting on this, uh, reflecting on, uh, on the work that I've been doing in the past. Again, most of the work, most of the crucial work, what I've done was between 1992 and 2006, 2007. And again, I'm saying to you, I guess, it's again the title of the show, it's the purpose of my show, is to, to go within and to look at what is sometimes very unpleasant. But if we keep that unpleasantness down there, it's always going to be there, and it's going to provoke those, um, what I mentioned, those uh, unconscious patterns. That's unconscious reactions, I guess. And um, uh, you know, Talk about the people close to you and see, get their feedback if, if you think you need, if you think you're in a similar situation, of course. And usually uh, these are very good messengers uh, to tell you about how they see you. And oftentimes I can tell that my wife tells me things, things that I don't realize. And uh, again, it's very helpful and very, very good idea to rely on those, on those messengers or those good friends that can help us out and reflect on, on, on those unconscious uh, habits, those unconscious behaviors. So I wanted to move on um, to the concept of, of Bill Plotkin, um, which is very much this idea of, of reflecting on what we... We go through and what kind of um, patterns we experience. So he wrote a book, Bill Plotkin, called uh, Nature and the Human Soul. It's a very thick book. I'm not going to talk about much. I want really to focus in uh, on this concept of the core, the sacred wound. Uh, he talks about it uh, two pages only in a chapter called The Wanderer in the Cocoon. And I think this chapter was especially meaningful because that's how I see, that's, how I, that's where I saw myself in the past few years. I would say at least in the past five years, I was um, seeing myself as, as... I wouldn't use the word stuck, but I was... I, was, I don't know what's going on in a cocoon. So, so few... Even the scientists do not know what's going on in a cocoon. You know, how does it morph into a, a butterfly? But... Um, I saw myself in a, in a transition phase that seems to have gone on for, for a long, long time. And the past three, four years, I knew that I was, I was moving on to something else in my life. I wasn't meant to be the, the cross-cultural trainer or consultant that I became 20 years ago. I knew that I was um, nearing the end of my rope, um, spiritually speaking. I mean, I had so many messages, and I listened to those messages. And at the same time, it's not very easy because um, it seems like nothing is coming. You have some messages, you read some articles that tell you you're on the right path, but concretely speaking, it seems like not much is moving. And it's, uh, you're really in a cave, and um, I don't know what's going on with your helmet, to use, um, to use another spelunking metaphor, but it looks like the, the light is not working. And you're trying to find your bearings in the cave. And uh, like the chrysalis in the cocoon, I'm not sure that you realize what's going on except that you feel there's a transition. And so that's why I found myself in the past, again, three, four years. um, I could feel that I was detaching myself from one part of who I was. And the reason why, and and that's what... um, Bill Plotkin explains in his book, and especially in the chapter, The Wanderer and the Cocoon, it's like we are leaving uh, leaving our old story behind. And uh, who we were, we were meant to be in the first phase of our life. Uh, He calls it late adolescence, but he also uses the concept of uh, first adulthood and second adulthood. So in a sense, we're moving in this phase, in this phase in the cocoon where we are wandering, we're moving be- between one adulthood and the second one, and possibly the third one. I don't know. Well, this is a transition phase, and we don't always get much, uh, much feedback. So I wanted to read a little bit about uh, this concept of the core wound. And um, it says in here uh, the pages, if you ever get the book, or you also go to the my blog and page 262, 263. Uh, She said she has made significant progress with the Oasis task of welcoming home a loyal soldier. She finds one branch of memory that is particularly and uniquely painful. This is an early psychological wound, a trauma so great, she formed the primary survival strategies of childhood in reaction to it. So hurtful that much of her personal style and sensitivities are their roots there. And when I read this, this is only one small excerpt. I have more to read, uh, possibly later. But it really hit home. You know, I knew that he was talking about what I had experienced. Again, something I experienced um, 40 years ago, and yet I read this book maybe in 2011. I think the book was recommended to be by my coach, uh, Lev Natan. I spent two years with him again. And... um, Again, that's like uh, a touchdown, in a sense. And it made me reflect on my own um, primary survival strategies in my childhood. And there's one I wanted to mention because it was a very very special one. And what happened in my mind, I was retaliating, uh, most likely towards my mother, but I was doing it in my mind and I was creating scenarios in the future when I could hurt someone. It didn't have to be my mother for whatever reason, but I know there was this kind of a, a mad or unhealthy pattern of retaliation in my mind. And this one was, I think, more conscious, especially when I look back. Um, it's, it's easier for me to, to remember. But uh, it's something, again, which, um, which was very meaningful to me when I started reading this another part I would like to read and I will um, say more during the next show about this this concept of the core wound Uh, she did not come from a dysfunctional family however to have wounds a core wound may stem from birth trauma or birth defect or the death of a mother when she was three or a pattern of innocent but shattering betrayals at the hands of her older brother Maybe it was a father's absence due to illness or a guilt of surviving the car wreck that claimed her younger sister, her own childhood bout, boot bout, the potentially deadly fever. So there's a lot of things that can go into this um, core wound that we may not be able to realize. And again, um, this is almost the end of the show, so I would like to thank you for listening. And... Uh, I assume that if you want to hear the rest of the story about the core wound and how it became so meaningful to me, um, you will have to tune in next week. So thank you very much. I look forward to being there again, and happy spelunking.
1: Thank you for joining us on Nurturing the Spiritual Spelunker in All of Us. Your personal journey, assisted by your guide and companion, Giles Asselin, will continue next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Be sure to tune in again.